0: Hello and welcome back to Oh God What Now, the podcast that's been forgetting to hug Matt Hancock since 2017. I'm Andrew Harrison. Britain is recovering from the worst lost weekend since that one that John Lennon had with Harry Nilsson back in the 70s. Boris Johnson is on a plane back to a much-deserved and ideally infinite holiday. And a long-running saga of wild fantasy, galactic evil and improbable plot twists did bring back a beloved lead character from the past. Luckily, it was Doctor Who and not the Conservative Party. Let's meet the runners and riders from today's show. Welcome back to political commentator, chef, actor, and Nostradamus, Alex Andreo. <laughs> How are you, Alex? I'm all right. You're basking in the glow of being the guy who called it, aren't you? Well, I
1: had to get one right eventually. <laughs> eventually, a lot of averages,
0: <laughs> yes. So, I mean, what made you think, suspect, that famously selfless and dutiful Boris Johnson would not fancy returning to number 10 to handle a once in 50 years economic crisis? It's so out of character. <laughs>
1: The only thing that matters to Johnson is preserving his image as a winner, okay? And on the whole, this was about rehabilitating that image. Mm. He's gone in a short three months from the guy that was rejected by his party to a guy that uh, is rejecting the party's calls Mm. For help, I or, didn't he you done, anyway. or he could <laughs> have done, or he could have done, yes, but he fucked even that, didn't mm. he? Because actually, at some point around Saturday afternoon, I reckon, because he gathered some momentum, yeah, this switched from being a little bit of a laugh and chucking a few grenades over the fence mm. to him thinking, Oh, maybe I've got a chance, and his competitiveness took over, so then he fluffed even that. Mm. I, I mean, I'm it was an easy one to get, in all honesty. I am amazed people like James Cleverly and Nadim Zahawi, who actually know him, mm. didn't <laughs> get it. If you put rats in a maze, by this point, they would know that the fat, fuzzy, yellow thing zaps them every time they mm. go near it. Not Zahawi. That's not where the cheese is. Not Cleverly, not Rhys Mogg. Mm. They're full on.
0: I think the, the appearance of Nadim Zahawi's get ready for Boris 2.0 thing in the Telegraph at the precise moment. <laughs> two
1: minutes. <laughs> so, so I'm
0: not doing it, it.
1: It was two minutes
0: before you that. was. was that was just, it was comment caviar. <laughs> um, also joining us today is Time Staff Writer Yasmin Serhan. Hello, Yasmin. Hello. So things have gone so stupidly fast here that we haven't even done a full show since Trust went, and that feels like the 18th century now. But your old employer, The Atlantic, had a piece telling America, don't worry, what happened in Britain couldn't happen here. By friend of the show, <laughs> Brian Class, Is that our role now? Are we a cautionary tale?
2: So actually, I I did read that piece. I thought it was great. Mm. Um, as, as are most things, everything I should say that Brian writes. I read that piece as a dose of optimism, mm. not for us, but for you guys, because ultimately the, the the point that Brian was trying to make that paradoxically, despite all the shambles that we've just seen over the past days, weeks, months. Truss's downfall shows, and I'm quoting Brian here, that British democracy is still working. Polarization is so toxic in the U.S. that Trump never dipped below about 35% approval, no matter what he did. Mm. Truss, who was incompetent but far less dangerous, saw her approval ratings flirt with single digits before she was forced out. Her political party and political base turned on her. And I think that the lesson, and AOC in the U.S. even flagged this as well, which shows that everyone really is watching what's Uh, going on here, is that, you know, parliamentary democracy for, for, you know, for for its failings, but also the positive bits as well, you can get rid of a leader when they suck. Mm. And the U.S., for all of its benefits and perils, cannot do that. You've got too many
0: of those checks and balances. We don't have any of those things. Yeah.
2: (laughs) I mean, so, I mean, I I think for for me, when I read that, I was like, you know what? He does have a point. So it looks shambolic here. And yes, it looks so incredibly unstable. But imagine if you were stuck with trust for four years. I mean, in the US, of course, a president could get impeached. So it's not like, you know, we're completely stuck with them. But Trump did all these horrible things and never got impeached. I mean, he got impeached twice, was never kicked out of office. You (laughs) have
0: impeachment. We have a lettuce, which is better. (laughs) I'll take the
2: lettuce any Um, day of the week.
0: In a week where we've had no shortage of stupidity and indeed salad components, we're delighted to be joined by the independent political sketch writer Tom Peck. Hi, Tom. Hi, up. So what did you make of uh, Sunak's debut statement and round of high fives today? You've been watching it close up as he climbs in and out of uh, Bentley's.
3: Oh, absolutely brilliant. I mean, the initial statement, I I, I've, I watched it on the BBC News Channel. I don't know if other news channels did better, but he failed to look down the camera, didn't he? Yeah, so, yeah, like, yeah. He didn't manage <laughs> to look a single up. person in the eye. <laughs> and he managed 83 seconds, right? And a long time ago, six months, people thought that Rishi Sunak was dead because there were certain question marks about whether or not he paid his, his fair share of taxes, and then three months and two months ago, he was definitely dead because, you know, he'd lost the leadership contest. But now he's prime minister anyway. And he only said about three sentences. And one of them was um, that, that this was his chance to, I and mean, this is a quote, to give something back to the country to whom I owe so much. I hope it's in cash. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mate, come on, who's who, the first thing you need to do is sack the scriptwriter because
0: that yeah. is as bad as it gets. There was something of the uncanny valley about him as he's just looking a little bit over your shoulder, not quite down the barrel. It just looked a little. It's like
1: someone needed to come on and slightly swivel him. <laughs>
0: yeah, there was a quite quite a C three Po ish uh, aspect to him on the serious side. though what does it, what does it say about our system that we're getting a new prime minister without any televised debates or any questioning of any kind? I think you were saying on Twitter, what it shows is that the televised debates is a waste of time anyway.
3: Yeah, well, th- in a perverse way, I have actually enjoyed the fact that there's been no TV debates, no interviews, no nothing. Um, and I'll tell you exactly why. I obviously have to watch all of these debates and write about them, yada, yada, yada. More often than not, when we have a leaders' debate for a general election, you usually get like the leader of the Welsh nationalists, the SNP take part, even though they're not standing to be the leader of the country. In a Tory leadership election, of which we've now had about a million, they deliberately cloak them in the outward um, resemblance of an actual democratic exercise, i.e. they all turn up and go on TV and debate each other, and we all watch it and say, oh, trusted well or all, oh, that was a good point by Jeremy Hunt, and then we all turn our TVs off and none of us got a fucking vote anyway. <laughs> so I actually quite like the fact that it's been very clearly shown to be a load of bollocks uh, by 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 having the bollocks bits removed from it if you know what i mean yeah, yeah. yeah i like the fact that there's been no pretense to make it look more democratic than it is
0: the last one was a six weeks of intensive and very boring campaign and this was just like oh you do it oh, all right then <laughs> See, i mean even
1: it. conservative <laughs> members I, I would have thought switched off by yes. about the after the first couple of weeks.
0: many of them literally yeah. were kind of <laughs> <kind> of <noise. laughs> Well, we're going to be talking about more of this uh, in a bit more detail a bit later. The new Prime Minister, the new Cabinet, what the world thought about it all. Plus, for a little bit of a change of pace, we're going to ask the panel to jump the ideological divide as the Tories go back to the future with Rishi and appear to be all out of ideas. How would we save the Conservative Party if it was our problem and imagining that we wanted to? Well, first, a bit of news from Alex.
1: We like to keep you on a healthy diet of new shows here at the House of Podmasters. And this week is very special because a brand new series of our companion podcast, Doomsday Watch with Arthur Snell, is starting this Wednesday, 26th of October. Doomsday Watch is the brilliant documentary series that looks at threats to global stability and takes a deep dive behind the simplistic headlines. Oh, God, what now, regular Arthur talks to his contacts around the world to build up a picture of the new world disorder and how it all interplays. Episode one is out on Wednesday, but if you back Doomsday Watch on Patreon, you'll get episode one and episode two immediately, and then every episode of the 10-part series a week early without adverts. Search Doomsday Watch Patreon to support the show, or search Doomsday Watch in your favourite podcast up to subscribe
0: Ooh. So you know you're getting old when the prime ministers come around so quickly. We've just run out of uh, Liz Truss puns. At the time of recording, Rishi Sunak has just been confirmed as Britain's third prime minister in two months. We cannot <laughs> guarantee he's still there when you're listening to this. It could be 12 hours later. Who even knows? Tom, uh, we're going let's let's clean up, clear up Boris Johnson first because this is obviously the most ridiculous thing that any of us have ever witnessed. The whole "I've got 102 backers." <laughs> but I can only name 57 of them and the rest of them go to a different school and you wouldn't know them. I mean, even by the standards of Boris Johnson's manipulation and gaslighting of the Conservative Party itself, this was on another level. Do you think it
3: was just a need for attention? No, I don't think it's a need for attention. I think it's strategy. and It's just, it's up But the trouble is it's so obviously, it's so obvious what he's trying to do. I, I don't really have a hundred, but if I say I've got a hundred, then I'll be on the ballot and then the members will vote me in. So anyone wavering needs to come my way or you're out. Um, I mean, that's so clearly what's happening. What is depressing is normal, decent – well, hang on. I say normal, decent. I immediately retract both those words. But the names have already been mentioned, like James Cleverly, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Nadim Zahawi. The fact that they – well, Jacob Rees-Mogg, I'm not surprised by. The other two, the fact that they went along with it, I mean, is just incredible. I don't think anybody, even in the mad times in which we've been living for a long time – has made more of a cosmic arse of themselves than Nadeem Zahawi did on Sunday.
0: The party of hard-nosed realism does seem remarkably easy to hoodwink, doesn't it? I mean, this is supposed to be the people who see the world as it is, without uh, you know, any kind of veil over the eyes and absolutely see through what's going on. Johnson's pulled the same thing on them this time that he did right after
3: the Brexit vote. I mean, I, I was walking home um, just to, about half an hour ago, and trying to think about it all. And suddenly I found myself thinking of this documentary that I watched a few years ago, this quite sad documentary where they took a load of um, um, homeless alcoholic people and they took them to like to do wholesome things like building rafts and so on and so forth just to try and get them to turn their lives around. And they also took them, quite depressingly, to um, uh, a sort of pauper's graveyard where, where, where people with no money and no re- relations and no one to care for them get buried by the government. It was quite sad. And then the last thing they did was they took him to the pub and they gave them a few pints and they all cheered up. And that is Boris Johnson's um, – that is what Boris Johnson does to the Conservative Party. He's like their drug. He's like, oh, well, oh, 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 we'll just do what Boris says. We don't know what else to do. Um, and the fact that they got taken in again, I'm just not surprised. I mean, I mean to a certain extent, if you're some Tory on 81 grand a year who has been, who's been voted in in some seat in the North, which they haven't won for 100 years, and you were only selected for that seat because nobody ever thought that you would win it. Two years later, you're clearly going to lose it. The reason you only think you've won it is because of Boris Johnson. And quite clearly, nobody else for the rest of your life is ever, 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 ever going to pay you £81,000 a year again. Maybe you just go back to Boris and hope for the best. But it's not going to, it wasn't going to work. What do you think
0: it's done for his future such as it is? this episode? Because he's, he's, he's actually uh, blown out the last reserves of the people who really believed him, which is the membership.
3: Um, what, because they wanted to vote for him and then they were deprived of the opportunity? I mean, I, I saw Michael Fabricant on the TV today. He's claiming that he'd been betrayed. You know, and if, if you've lost Fabricant, then, I mean, you really have lost everyone. I don't suppose it's going to, um, I mean, I don't suppose there will be many sort of Midwestern American universities with 250 grand for a speech and they burning a hole in their back pocket, they're going to be dissuaded by what Michael Fabricant has said on Sky News. So I think his future is probably exactly the same as it was. He's just taken another chance because he couldn't help himself of revealing exactly who he is to the the people who, who already knew and had already given up on him. I'm going to
1: disagree. I think he's actually improved his chances because what he's created is the the illusion that the membership have been denied from their natural mm. choice. And the narrative that he's put out there with that ridiculous statement and which some broadcasters were picking up today, some broadcasters were saying as if it was a matter of fact that had Johnson gone to the uh, Tory membership, he would have won. Mm. And so he hmm. somehow managed to create this narrative that Sunak really is a loser, yeah. even though he's just been made PM. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. That it's only by the grace of Johnson that he's managed that. And so I think he's actually created an opportunity for himself. And
0: it was an immensely Trumpy statement as well, wasn't it? It was all about what I, I had won it by a mile, bigly, uh, but I was, uh, it, the, but the time is uh, it's not right now. Trump uh, is sad. in full
1: of gas. Uh, exactly, <laughs> uh,
0: both, in both senses.
1: Yeah,
2: I mean, that's a really great point, Alex. And you know what, I mean, it, it it does kind of lend itself to that weird sort of politics of grievance without going so far as to say, I've been wronged, but, but also equally, it kind of gives the members someone to look to and be hopeful for if, and when this invariably fails. Cause I mean, Sunak is facing the same, if not worse conditions than trusted. Mm. Um, not Made so
0: like, worse by trust. Yes, mm. exactly.
2: Um, so, you know, he, there's a lot that he's up against quite understandably. So, you know, it, if there comes a time, I felt like for me that that statement and even this whole sort of will he or won't he was the clearest indication from Johnson that I still very much see myself coming back. Maybe not now, but at some point and almost like hinting to the members, just wait. Mm-hmm. And when you get fed up, ask mm-hmm. for me.
1: And we haven't even had a statement from Johnson yet, which we will get at some point. So look forward to, you know, adorably humbled and t- tousled haired. Um, him going on about how it's nice to be wanted, but it's just the media that got overexcited, and alas, like Prometheus, he must regenerate before being pecked by the eagle of politics again, etc., etc. Et Have
2: you seen an advance statement? That sounds quite right. <laughs> I, I'm
1: just going to write "pecked by the eagle of politics" down for our new
0: slogan. Because I think that's what we are. <laughs> we? I think it's a good title for Tom for a column. It is pecked by the eagle of politics. <laughs> um, but that, that, that actually does bring me to what, You know, if he even. T- Ends up to the House of Commons. What are we going to expect? Are we going to expect backseat driving? You don't want to do it like
1: that? No, because he has nothing of intellectual value to add. Oh. He will turn up occasionally, just sort of glower at his enemies and create a fear in them that he might get up and say something <laughs> without actually saying anything. He's a he's a a person like Trump who acts primarily through proxies, who lets other people do his dirty work. Um But I think one thing that we can take away from this episode is that the lionization of Johnson, this mythical status, this magic um, uh, dust that he seems to be surrounded. We are equally responsible for it, Mm -hmm. right? Because many politicians make a comeback. Most don't. But he's the only one that we're willing to believe whatever he does, that he's going to make a comeback, At some point. And that actually makes his comeback more likely. Ali Fortescue was on Sky yesterday and she was saying there's a danger here that we all end up just talking about Johnson, as I'm probably doing right now. Yes. But the narrative of him coming back is so delicious that we can't resist it. I that's can resist. The, that's it. The, no, but but that's the line, yeah. right? That says, I think a lot. Yeah. Let's
0: move away from him as far as we possibly can. Yasmin, where did Penny Mordaunt go wrong? Did she go wrong by being Penny Mordent?
2: Um I, I mean, it it kind of just felt like she didn't see the writing on the wall. I mean, it was very clear that the Tory Party set this threshold, not just to to limit and prevent this sort of long drawn out competition. But invariably to sort of, I mean, I, I think sort of everyone knew where this was ending. Mm. The only sort of what if was what if Johnson actually gets. But I mean, even then, once it kind of had appeared that, you know, campaign sources claim I have this many, but we haven't seen them. I just, I, I think people had sort of, she was already being widely discounted. I mean, the moment Boris announced that he wasn't running, people were like, okay, it's Sunak then. Like everyone mm. kind of knew yeah, before yeah. she did. And I don't know if it's because, you know, part of me thinks we've already been, I'm not defending the fact that there were no debates or no commentary. There absolutely should have been. But because we literally only did this seven weeks ago and because all the players are the same, I think people probably felt like we already know.
0: Everything we need everything to know, we need about to know. You and we already and know that
2: Sunak made it to the end mm. and that he's the favorite among Tory MPs. And if you know Tory members aren't gonna get consulted, yeah. what are you even here for? It's it's not like it was because Liz Trust was there that Penny Morton didn't make it. No. It, it was, uh, uh, yeah, I just it kind of just felt like she was going for it because she felt like she could. But I feel like everyone else knew that this wasn't yeah. her time.
0: It feels like we should talk about the new prime minister for a bit rather than the people who didn't become the prime minister. Yeah, um, probably a good idea. Is, is a Sunak's victory a victory for any kind of a programme or a parcel of ideas, Alex, or is it just a repudiation
1: of Liz Truss? Who was it this morning? that called, it's Shaps, it was Grand oh, yeah. Shapps, wasn't it? He called it a diversion, an excursion. Yeah, that's going to cost us tens of billions of pounds mm. in higher borrowing costs for state and individuals for the next decade. But what an excursion. Um, I think Sunak's is a victory for a sort of monetarist technocracy, a sort of, you know, sales rep kind of style of politics where nothing is terribly exciting, but it's also not a disaster. Beyond that, I don't know, and I don't think anybody does, because there was so much briefing and counter-briefing between number 10 and number 11 for the time that he was there, that... We don't have a clear picture of what policies Mm. uh, it was that Sunak prevailed on and what policies Mm. it was that Johnson prevailed on. Anything successful, they both claimed it. Anything unsuccessful, they both claimed it was the other one that imposed it on them. And so we don't really have a sense of who Sunak is in terms of policy.
0: Well, as uh, Marie LeCamp pointed out on Twitter today, it's worth remembering that uh, Sunak was put into number 11 as a pliable nobody who would do what he was told. yeah
1: with with uh, a sort of PR people appointed by Dominic Cummings. Mm. That was his initial sales point. And now the little it? wooden boy is a real boy. Yes, yes. Mm. But, you know, the, the UK economic outlook has changed significantly in the last month after the botched budget. I heard one analyst put it really nicely. He said that the UK economy or rather the way markets look at the UK economy, has gone from we trust you to show me, Mm. okay? That's a big shift in attitude. And Sunak is going to be imposed on us without having made a single statement on record about what his plan is for getting out of the current economic hole. Mm. Not one
0: so we'll be finding out about that when it is presented to us in the form of legislation rather yeah, than by
1: hunt or yeah. maybe not by hunt
0: are we are we fooling ourselves that he's an improvement just because he's not visibly crazy and incompetent like truss was i mean the sharp contrast
1: no he's an improvement mm. he's an improvement because you know the 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 woman before was an idiot i mean she was just profoundly dense and the man before that, I think, was pathologically dishonest. Mm. And both those things are really problematic to have at the top of the leadership tree. And I don't think Sunak is either stupid or pathologic, pathologically mm. dishonest. I think he's a fairly middle of the line politician. He might be kind of that weird thing that we thought we'd never see again,
0: which is just like a politician you disagree with. Yeah. You know, that weird ancient
1: seems almost quaint. But mind you, we said that after um, Liz Truss's first PMQs. Didn't that, that? Isn't it amazing how the argument has moved on to a basic difference in policy? Someone saying low taxes versus someone saying, you know, redistribution. But then it. It fell apart. It fell apart when,
0: I think, I can't remember which Tory backbencher said it today, it was like, it was all good, but then she poured a bucket of petrol and everything. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: And then do we are. Yasmin, how do you think sumac's going to go down in the US and the rest of the world? Have they even heard of him?
2: <laughs> I mean, he does have a home, I think, in Santa Monica and he did yeah. have a green card. So maybe they, they should be. He went to Stanford University as well. Uh, spends a lot of time in the best state in the country. So I will give <laughs> him credit there. Um, look, I, I think, you know, Joe Biden obviously commented on Liz Truss's economic package and, you know, was uh, surprisingly, I think, critical, more so than I think uh, U.S. presidents tend to be of their close allies. And so I, I think any leader that comes in that is going to present an image of stability and kind of someone you can rely on to sort of steady the ship is probably going to be welcome, not just by the U.S., but I think by Europe as well. Because, I mean, remembering, despite the fact that, you know, the U.K. does what it wants, if it wants to take its own economy, fine. It it will obviously have repercussions. But, like, there are bigger international issues at play, Mm. Ukraine being kind of chief among them. I will say in terms of the international responses, I mean, you know, I think even with Biden towards trust, I thought he was quite kind and said, you know, she was a great partner. Um, so, So I think generally people... To the extent that they're watching this abroad, and I know people are because I've had a lot of American friends text me just like multiple question marks, being like, "What's mm. going on?" Um, I, I think they're they're probably just struck by how many leaders the UK's had in the last few months, which is three. Um, however, yeah, I, I think world leaders are probably just looking for stability um, and. Yeah, I mean, the the, the couple of weird responses, and I think this just kind of shows the sort of mockery that was playing out. I mean, the mere fact that you had the one German broadcaster having to Repeat all the swearing, and she was explaining yeah. what Anetid. was happening. Our to lovely and yeah, yeah. lovely oh, so yeah. show. Fame. Yes. She was brilliant. Yeah. I saw. So I had multiple people send that to me as well from different parts of the globe. Um, it, you know, you had Russian officials tweeting about like congrats to the lettuce. Elon Musk responding saying that was a good troll. I mean, it was just. It was all just very weird and kind of embarrassing. Even, I mean, you know, I'll bring that. Ukraine's Twitter account posted some weird meme about bringing Boris back, which I also thought was very strange. And I'm like, please don't do this. Uh, Not and even a partisan level. I was just like, why are you picking? Don't pick a side. It it doesn't help you to pick a side here. Um, So it was all very weird. But yeah, I think if, if you're looking at world leaders, you're looking at the White House. They're probably they just want someone who can provide a bit more of the UK they're familiar with.
0: Well, we're going to return to what the world thought about it a little bit later. But I also wanted to ask you, I mean, people are weirdly relaxed about having probably the richest prime minister there has ever been at a time of extreme poverty and financial uncertainty. And everybody's just like, yeah, he's kind of rich.
2: There was a headline in the Washington Post, which I admittedly just scrolled past, so I haven't had the chance to read it. But it was talking about how, um, I'm assuming, in a first... um, the occupant of 10 downing street will be richer than the occupants of buckingham palace <laughs> which is <laughs> and if that you know, isn't uh, progress i don't know what is um yeah i mean i think that's obviously something are going that people are going to you know we yeah. we knew this about sunak we we know we've seen the clothes he wears we know he likes coca-cola i mean we we know him as i think people have just accepted that that is a price they're willing to pay because they've seen what sort of quote unquote normal brings you and
0: but british people have a weird kind of they respond to money and poshness and they sort of like being shoved around by their betters in quotes and it's just weird but that's whatever you all are into
1: is well i I don't know man i saw a lot of a lot of vox pops today that seem to be simultaneously coming up with this idea that how will someone like that ever yeah. understand the choices we have to make between like, eating and heating?
0: But simultaneously, I saw a lot of Vox Pops today, people say, well, let's just give him a chance. Everybody should get a chance. Sure. Like everybody should have a go at being prime know, minister. And
1: it looks like everybody
3: will
0: at this current rate.
3: Listen, mate, I'm just waiting my turn. Uh, well, That's me, all I, get I say. Get in line. <laughs> Tom. Can, um, can, I, can I just quickly say something about um, the discussion we've just been having, which is that... Um, I, this week, this this past week that's gone, in so many ways, it's been a reminder actually of what of all the good stuff about Britain. But I know I know that um like how many times have we heard people say for the last god knows how long that I don't recognise my country anymore and we're such an embarrassment and what's happened to this country, yada yada yada. What's happened to this country is the Tories, that's it. In the last week, right, we have had a lettuce um broadcast onto the side of the House of Commons. Um, wearing wearing a wig and little glasses, we have had Boris Johnson booed when he got onto an aeroplane to fly home from the Dominican Republic. We've also had a newsreader saying, "What a <laughs> on hot mic!" Like those three <laughs> things are totemic. They are what they are—the Britain that I love and that I recognise. All authority being told to do one, no one being taken seriously. Don't 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 think that we've lost everything. We're we're still what we always were. We've just got a bad party in charge.
0: Yeah, that's very, that's very like encouraging that. thought. Mm. I want to ask you, Tom, though. I mean, Sunak may well get to an election in 2024 with the bad times sort of fading. Inflation, inflation will probably have gone down because it tends to after peaks. He may well be able to sort of present himself as somebody fresh who fixed it. What do you think Labour has got to do with him now? It's got two years.
3: So- yeah, I mean, looking at, no political punditry has ever looked two years into the future and said anything of any insight. So I do not think that trend is going to be broken with me. But... In 1997, the economy had improved. Um, John Major had fa- favourable economic wins behind him, but it didn't do him any good. At the time, at, at this present moment in time, there is no doubt that the tide has gone out on the Conservatives. And if, if Rishi Sunak does a good job and we return to politics a bit more like where the two parties look a lot more like one another and they're competing for the centre ground, then I think that is a good thing. That's how politics should be. But you cannot. Assume that as a result of that, the favourability, the, the fortunes of the party in power will improve. I think people just want to change. And even if the economy improves, people will be relieved, but they'll still want to change. I don't think there's anything Sunak can really do to turn that party's fortunes around at this point. Mm. One thing that we've heard all day,
0: every day since Truss went was this mantra of unite the party. So whoever's going to win this has got to unite the party. He clearly has, still has a huge chunk of the parliamentary party who still hate him for being part of the removal of Boris Johnson. Uniting the party seems an enormous ask. Do you think this can happen or is the, is the Conservative Party fundamentally disunited, you know, not just on policy, but on... You know, it's ruled well, for so long on, on, on kind of neo-religious belief.
3: Well, look, Penny Morden did not withdraw from the leadership contest until what, 13.57 today, three minutes three minutes before the deadline, still trying to get to 100. Why do you think that is? We all know exactly why that is, because Boris Johnson was still machinating, trying to do what he could to take down Rishi Sunak, because Rishi Sunak took down him. There are still large numbers of the Tory party, parliamentary party, in thrall to Boris Johnson, And I suspect, although I do not know, I suspect that Johnson's fervent wish to destroy Rishi Sunak will not have gone away. Anything that Rishi Sunak wants to do to try and unite that party will be impossible. The best he can do is try and kick all the the Johnson fanboys out. Don't let them anywhere near power. Don't let them anywhere near government. I
2: also just think Tories seem to have a taste for rebellion now. And I think backbenchers have realised they have quite a lot of power. And if this is a fractious party as it is, and we've seen that, I don't see why they wouldn't be out for blood all the time. It's not in their interest. And this is a party that does seem to act on their interest. I think that's why we've seen such high turnover, because suddenly their interests change when they see themselves as having an election loser in power. But they just strike me as people have just I mean, I remember we would question, do, do they have the capability for regicide? They absolutely do. They've shown that they do. Yeah. They, they
1: have times. a habit for it yeah. now. Well, the I guess what ERG statement was interesting today. We couldn't choose. Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah. Because that seems to me to have the seeds in it of them saying he hasn't committed to what we wanted on the Northern Ireland yeah. Protocol. And if Sunak actually comes in and as a Brexiter feels, he can actually be more pragmatic yeah. about Brexit than the previous three Remainers – Um, have been, because Johnson, we know, is a Remainer, really. Maybe he will actually be more amenable to a a negotiated Mm -hmm. solution to the no- Northern Ireland Protocol. And that could blow up very quickly. It was very interesting.
0: That I had nothing to say about nothing. anything other than the North, uh, Northern Ireland yeah. Protocol. I mean, we're in the, the economy's on fire. People are losing all kinds of stuff. And all these people are interested in was the Northern Ireland Protocol. But I'm going to get a Boris Johnson swear jar for this studio. And every time anybody mentions him going forward, a pound is going to go in. <laughs> and at the end of the week, I'm going to buy a Rolex, right? Because we'll never be able to escape from Boris Johnson. We will know pretty much pretty soon this week who's in the cabinet, And then we'll know
1: his approach to uniting the If I say is, shit Midas, does look, that still you know, make me put a bound in this way? Alexander right de Feffel. I think we'll <laughs> know who you're talking about. <laughs>
0: Well, as Jasmine said, if you've got uh, in-laws or friends anywhere in the world, you'll have been getting messages, late-night messages on <laughs> WhatsApp, saying things like, what the hell's going on in Britain right now? And is everything okay? And, you know, we've got spare beds here if you need them. We talked a little bit a moment ago about what the world's been saying about Britain in this weird week. Not just the media, but the markets as well. You know, we talk about this intangible thing, the reputation of Britain in the world. And Alex was just talking about how it's gone from, we trust you, to "To show me. Do you think this has done something permanent to our reputation, Jasmine? <sighs>
2: I don't think Liz Truss was around long enough to to make any sort of permanent mark. But I do think that this past year and the instability that we've seen from Johnson to her to Sunak has perhaps left a bit of a mark in terms of what because, you know, I mean, I think when outsiders look to Britain, you know, they'll often mention Brexit. But this has even gone. I mean, obviously, this country is still feeling the repercussions of that decision. But I mean, notably, it it does feel like even that debate has kind of moved beyond that a little bit. I don't don't know if that's fair to say. But I mean, in terms of the sort of are you a remainer? I mean, I feel like so especially within the Tory party, so many people have kind of crossed paths, have become converts. So, you know, trust being kind of a zealot among them. Hmm. Um, I, I think this past year of of just all of that has changed. But I mean, in terms of how Western allies see Britain, in terms of certainly how countries like Ukraine, the United States, France, they probably see a Britain that has preached global, sort of had this very, you know, global ambition. This country spends so much time navel gazing. I think its allies could be forgiven for thinking that, you know, maybe Britain is just a bit too distracted. Mm. So I don't think it's going to suddenly become a not important country? I mean, this is a NATO member, uh, you know, on the various G20, G7. I mean, Britain is internationally still an important country. However, does its rhetoric about global Britain and being this big power match the way it looks to the rest of the world? I I don't think so. And I think that'll take a bit of time to repair.
0: Alex, the international markets more or less vetoed trustonomics. And today the uh, cost of UK government borrowing is falling as uh, Sunak seemed to be assert. So it looks like the horror and the fever seems to have passed in their eyes at least. But you have your concerns about markets having such an outsized power over domestic economic policy, don't you?
1: Okay, so there's one thing to unpick there. I do have my concerns, but I have my concerns about international or other supranational institutions getting involved. And I think if you had experienced what happened to Greece 10 years ago or 12 mm-hmm. years ago, you would have the same concerns. But there is a big difference. There is a big difference between the IMF or the European Central Bank, bank telling a, a democratically elected government, you will do this all. And there's a big difference yeah. in the markets, in millions of individual traders and analysts' decision, reacting in a, in a way to a program that you've put forward that they don't like mm. you know it's it's a weirdly similar debate to freedom of speech as opposed to freedom of consequence for for what yeah. you say you know no one limited the the british government as to what policies it would adopt it went out there and adopted exactly the policies it wanted it's just that millions of people making individual investment decisions looked at that Mm. slate of policies, and were fucking horrified. Mm. That's what happened. Yeah, But, you know, when it comes to supranational organ- organisations getting their nose in it and saying, no, you have to do this, we won't be satisfied until you replace the chancellor with that person, then yes, it, you know, obviously it's a problem.
0: I mean, when you're 100 years old like me, you can dimly remember uh, Britain having to go cap in hand to the IMF in, a mm. day, in the days when people actually had non-ironic caps, not a Peaky Blinders cap or an actual real one that your granddad would mm. have. It seems not impossible that we might end up in a similar situation.
1: Well, I mean, it's funny you should say that because uh, uh, Guy Hans, who is a sort of investment banker yes. uh, and a big Tory supporter, you know, he he's sort of William Hague's right-hand man, mm. has been for many years.
0: He was the guy who bought AMI yeah. and made a bit of a mess of it.
1: And he's he was on the Today programme saying that, you know, mistakes have been made in the last six years, and he counts Brexit as the beginning of those, that have put the UK on a path, and I'm quoting here, to be the sick man of Europe um, and headed to an IMF bailout. Yeah. Um, so that, that really was quite stark. And what he was saying is that it's essential now. And a lot of people have been echoing this, that Sunak, as a Brexiteer, as a bona fide a supporter of that project may actually have more freedom to unpick that a little bit and say, "This is working, this isn't. We have to change that and make it better." So I guess we'll see
0: because he's part of the priesthood, he's not an, he's not a convert, he's not an outsider
1: but but he was saying that we're now, as far as um, you know the markets are concerned, we are now in the same bracket as Italy and Greece.
0: Well, I mean, that is interesting, isn't it? Because The Economist managed to offend everybody with its (laughs) Brittany cover, which depicted Liz Truss as Britannia with a pizza shield and spaghetti on her trident. And the Italian ambassador was titanically unamused by this, pointed out that uh, Italy has rather a large tech sector and a biotech sector, and it's a fully functioning modern economy, actually. Um, And yet maybe we have sort of switched... Rolls with them a little bit.
1: I, I don't think we have switched. You know, the, the Italian econ- economy has its weaknesses and the political system has its weaknesses. But I think we have to switch off from that exceptionalism because it was key, was a key factor in thousands of people dying during the pandemic. You know, mm. a key factor to that was that Britain looked over at what was happening in Italy and said, oh, they're a joke. Their health system is a joke. Northern Italy is directly comparable to anything we have here. It's it's affluent. Its health system is splendid, and so it, that was a mistake that cost lives. Mm-hmm. You know, this notion that okay, Italy is drowning in cases, but this could never happen here because we're Britain. We need to shed that. We need to we need to shed that in order to do well going forward.
0: Tom, um, foreign policy for the past few years has revolved around shouting global Britain and kind of leaving it at that. Are you expecting a different, a different take from Prime Minister Sunak, which I'm still getting used to saying?
3: Well, look, Britain's image in, in terms of how the rest of the world sees it still revolves around Brexit. Um, in this country, there is, in my view, a kind of misunderstanding. Rishi Sunak, for example, never wrote two letters about Brexit, did he? He wrote one. Um, and he wrote it in his school newspaper in 1999 as well. He was sort of a little little neo-Thatcherite Eurosceptic. Um, people often imagine that he provides some kind of economic ballast because he's uh, used to work in the city to Brexit, but he's never actually provided any. And on the international stage, uh, in now he's in the big boy's chair with his very small shoes, he will don't have be sizes, to try and podcast. provide some sort of credible economic analysis for Brexit. He will have to try and put forward some sort of case for how it's going to improve the UK economy. And I don't think he's going to be able to shrink from it in the way that Boris Johnson found it easier to shrink from because he's so dishonest. And unless he can come up with some meaningful thesis, if you like, for why Brexit is a good thing for Britain's global position in the world, he will not really be able to convince many global leaders to take him seriously. And I think he will find it very, very hard to do that. Very, very hard to lie in the bed that he's made for himself.
0: Yeah, he's, it, he's unusual in that he's a politician who occupies the non-bullshit universe for Britain. First prime minister we've had in several years, who occupies a rules-based, logic-based, reason-based world of course. Well, yeah,
3: in, in theory, but, but arguably not. That, that's what I find to... What if, what if, what? You know, I was outside the 1922 committee uh, this after, uh, earlier when when two net one and um and Mark Carney strode past because he'd just come from some um some some uh, he'd been at a separate committee down the road and it was it was it was somebody asking whether or not he was um popping in to congratulate his uh his mate from Goldman on his new job of course Richie is our first Goldman Prime Minister um but we had but there's this perception of him that having had a job in the city he's therefore this this economic genius. Like he's really not. He did two years on the Goldman grad scheme and he's never once articulated in any meaningful way any pro-Brexit case other than the general sort of sovereignty, better off out, don't want to be told what to do by them. He's never, he's never, ever, 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 ever once made a reasonable, he's never attempted to make a genuine economic argument for Brexit. So so he's, the idea that he is like a great change, he's a big change from Boris Johnson in lots of ways. In others, I think he's going to be quite quickly revealed to kind of be more similar than people suspect.
0: Finally, we spent a lot of time complaining about the Conservative Party. It's time to take a trip into an alternative reality where it's our problem, where we are the political advisors attempting to save them from electoral oblivion. Labour is still about 30 points ahead. Rishi Sunat might eat away at that, but the Conservatives still have a mountain to climb. So imagining, obviously, that we would want there to be a functioning, sane Conservative Party, what would we do to bring it about? Tom, I always used to worry that Margaret Thatcher didn't just want to defeat Labour, she wanted to destroy it, she wanted to wipe the party out. And you kind of need a functioning, you just need another party, don't you? You need another one. The Conservatives have got this world of problems, they've got a mad, ageing, unrepresentative membership. Brexit, as you've just described, infects and shapes everything. The party's split and it's run out of ideas. So if you're in the big seat, Tom somehow how do you regenerate <laughs> how do you regenerate this knackered machine
3: um well i mean i don't want to spoil the game but obviously i would do nothing to save them i would crush them into oblivion and hopefully they would never ever 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 come back but a better answer like a sort of tangential answer if you like to your question is if i was labor if i was like keir starmer who won an election win and win, win an election in two years time one of the first things i would do on day one is institute uh, is have a referendum and potentially bring in the the, the recommendations of the jenkins report in 1999 and change the voting system have proportional representation and then you don't need what you, you don't you you no longer have a scenario which has happened in this country especially with corbyn and labor where you have a sort of a dead second party which is a sort of a zombie party clinging on but they can't ever actually be allowed to to just completely disappear altogether which is a is a quite often in politics can be a good outcome that never really happens in this country. So,
0: the, so the proportional representation could actually, in a weird way, be the saviour of Toryism.
3: It could be. The, it could be the saviour for people who, I mean, the, the Tories do well in this country because there are large numbers of people who don't maybe don't like them very much, but don't want to vote for a party that is that they can, that describes themselves as socialist, even though they're not really socialist. A lot of normal people think, well, I'm not going to vote for the socialists. I'll vote for the Tories. And I think if you had a political world in which It wasn't entirely binary. I mean, I know we do have the Lib Dems as well, but that's a whole other subject. Um, You might... People, not necessarily the Tory party, but people would be politically saved by a different system that allowed them to essentially not vote for the Conservatives. But I know that's not really an answer to your question. The question is, how would I rejuvenate them? Um, (laughs) I mean, but you, you can only rejuvenate them from the position that they are in, right? So let's say that they lose an election in two years' time. They've already purged all of their moderate people. Boris Johnson did that in 2019. They won't be coming back. They will certainly lose all of the young people that they gained in sort of 2019 in the Red Wall. So you'll be left with a load of safe seats from which they kicked out the likes of David Gort, Phil Hammond, obviously Ken Clarke retired, and replaced them with um, Brexit-loving, far more right-wing people and that is the rump from which they will have to rebuild. And that will be extremely, extremely difficult. And in the end, that their rebuilding, I suspect, will, do, will come in the form of what, of, of what they went through between 1997 and 2010. Somebody will have to come along and just totally start again and say, you know, like when the Tories lost in 97, they became even more right wing. And then it took David Cameron to tell them that, that was a bad idea. And I suspect they will have to go on that journey again. But I think it will take them more than one electoral cycle.
0: Well, Alex, I was going to ask you about this, because the last time anybody attended this was the kind of, you know, almost beginning with Theresa May and her famous nasty party speech in yeah, 2002, yeah. which then then did culminate in Cameron's kind of PR version of Toryism. You know, big society, hog all hoodie. Good kind of... how I hated the yeah, big society. It was horrible. It and... was stupid. But, they, but it didn't work. Um, do you think that's what, you know, if...
1: If but at least it problem. was reaching for something noble. I've come to appreciate it since. It looked, well, I <laughs> hated the big society at the time. Yeah. But since I've come to appreciate it, because at least it was reaching for something Yeah, noble. at
0: least it wasn't a determined attempt to make things more shit, yeah. which everything else That's has right. been. Yes. That's right. So you're in the big chair.
1: What are you doing to fix the Tory party? Are you calling me fat? You're in the big chair. I'm in a small t- I'm in, a, <laughs> in an average chair. Um I think the flip-flopping we saw this week, Mm -hmm. you know, people just going from vehemently supporting Trust to Johnson to Sunak to Mordant. I mean, aside from being incredibly undignified, I think it was a system of quite a deep lack of principles and ideology within the party so i don't think it was just a cynical attempt to get a job i think the party has been has divested itself of any sort of theoretical grounding it seems to me it made itself the get brexit done party purged itself of any intellect because with intellect comes the chance of challenge and Mm -hmm. dissent so you know it, it Purged itself of the David Gorks and the, you know, and the the Greaves and the Ruds, and has been left quite hollow. I think, yeah. and in order to recover, I think it has to attract some of that intellect back into the party that actually has ideas of policies, ideas about how to govern. Even if there are ideas that I disagree with, yeah. it's better to have ideas than have none. So. I think I would pick a fight with the ERG as as quickly as possible. All right, because actually, the the Tories are probably going to lose the next election anyway, and an eighty seat majority can just about take a Barney without grouping. So I would pick a fight with them. Over the Northern Ireland Protocol, it is a good issue in which to go because there is a pragmatic solution there. But nothing will satisfy them either, you know, outside sort of bombing Dublin. So let's put that to one side, have a fight with them. It won't be 60 or 70 that rebel. It will be like the 20 or 25 proper headbangers that lose their shit. Then you can get rid of them, literally purge them from the party, Johnson, who represents a real present danger and hates playing second fiddle to anyone, will be naturally attracted to leading that grouping. And so you will have a little schism in the Conservative Party, which might leave the main rump of it in a position to recover in the future. But we're talking two electoral cycles, I think.
0: Yeah, I think everybody understands it's going to be ages and ages, unless they win next time. Listen,
1: uh, having said that, we thought it was going to be two electoral cycles when Johnson won. Yeah. Um, And look how that turned up. So, I mean, let's hope that the current lot in the Labour Party are not that incompetent and corrupt.
0: Yasmin, the Conservatives seem to have absolutely zero appeal to anybody under about 40, apart from some very strange people that you see on television sometimes. But in the US, the young Republican bro is very much a presence on the scene and almost a caricature. Why do do the Republicans get the under 40s when the Tories don't?
2: Well, so on balance... I think Republicans do skew older, and mm-hmm. I, I I don't like I don't know these numbers super well, but I looked at Pew Research Center, and according to a 2020 study they did, more than half of Republicans and GOP leading voters, 56 percent, are aged 50 and up, yeah. um, which is up from 39 percent in 1996. So I think the, the young Republican bro, notwithstanding, and, and I can picture him, and they definitely exist. I, I do think that Republicans do tend to, to skew older. That said, I, I think the, the right-wing politics that we're, we're seeing around the world, and I think in terms of Republicans, you could probably say far-right politics now, um, we are seeing an appeal among younger people. I mean, you see it in France with Marine Le Pen. Yeah. Mm. She, there's quite a lot of...
1: Bolsonaro, <laughs> I was doing an interview yeah. today on the upcoming election, and he his appeal with young people is vast, while Lula is really popular with his sort of over-60s vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same with Giorgio Meloni in Italy. Yeah, Again, yeah, exactly. big uh, mm-hmm. youth so, vote.
2: Yeah, so it's it's certainly the case that this politics is is not going anywhere. It's not going to, to you know, age out, so to speak. What
0: would your prescription be for the Conservatives?
2: <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I care insofar so far as I live here and I have to deal with the consequences, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I will, I will extend that much. But I, I think a common thread between the Johnson and Truss era's Short as it was, especially for the latter, is that both were seemingly brought down, at least in part, by their unwillingness to abide by the norms and values. Mm. that underpin British politics. Um, In defiance of convention, you know, we know that Truss's government opted against subjecting her economic plan Mm. to the Office of Budget Responsibility, perhaps knowing that it wouldn't pass muster. Um, She sidelined other institutions like the Bank of England and the Civil Service. Um, Of course, I don't need to go through all the things that Boris Johnson did that undermined those (laughs) norms, uh, the the norms of British politics. Um, You know, he he liked kind of casting himself as like, he, he was perfect to be the insider who cast himself as an outsider and sort of framed his, himself as this crazy insurgent I think if I were advising Sunak I would basically and I think this is probably his instinct anyway is to basically tell him to do the exact opposite of that and to basically recognize that integrity and honesty are Mm. critical to good governance and actually despite the fact that you guys don't write down your constitution which I get that's fine Brits do actually care about that sort of thing I think they do and I do think they they do care about a sense of fairness and and you know in his statement announcing his leadership bid he did say that he pledged that there would be integrity, professionalism and accountability at every level of a government that he led. Um, I think he really needs to make sure that that's the case and not make
1: yeah. it seem like they just. S- yeah. So did Johnson in the foreword to his manifesto.
0: <laughs> yeah. All I've got is to embrace the small C in conservatism and actually try and do a kind of um Climate change conscious ecological conservatism where you actually conserve things because you've got a little bit of connection with the countryside. The major political division at the moment seems to be between the suburbs and the countryside and the hated city. So mm, you identify mm. yourself with the country at large and you, you you say that uh renewable energy is patriotic and you say that you know conserving the environment is patriotic and you kind of almost reconnect the Tory party with its roots. Would it work? I don't know. I don't I'm not that sure I care whether it works or not. I'm happy for them Do- to go into their three years of 10 years of how they've they've certainly... Do you know, I
1: have a weird feeling in my waters that the Conservatives will end up coming back in 10 years' time as the party that probably takes us back into the European Union. I think they will sort of recapture their their taste for economic uh, competence and purge the party of the loons little by little and return as actually a party advocating probably EEA membership. Well, let's all
0: meet up in the year 2032 and discuss it.
1: <laughs> we'll still be here. We'll be doing five days a week. I know.
0: we go it's time for escape routes where we ask the panel what are the films books miscellaneous tv shows anything they like that they've been using to escape from the political nightmare and um, tom what's your escape route at the moment
3: yeah well i've had bugger all escape for the last week but <laughs> I, and this is the most boring one ever but i did finally get to the end of better call saul and my god it's good isn't it and it's so good that i think i'm going to go and have to have a, a third um a third all the way through of breaking bad i've done i've done the journey twice And I think I'm going to go in. I'm going to go in for a third hit. It's so good.
0: Well, I haven't actually finished Breaking Bad, so I haven't started Better Call Saul. So I probably need to. Oh
3: man, I'm jealous. They've won. You know, they do that thing in Men in Black where you can be hypnotised. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I would love to have have all that stuff taken off me so I could just do it again.
0: The great thing is, if you had Breaking Bad mind wiped from you, you'd also have the past five years of British politics mind wiped from you as well. So double winner. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yasmin, how about you? What's your escape route?
2: Um, Well, The Handmaid's Tale is Ah. back in this country. It's been out in the US for a while. I've been very jealous. Um, So, yeah, I'm going to be escaping one dystopia for another. Very excited. I yeah. that
0: show. I mean I've I did series 1 and then kind of uh, fell off the bus a little bit. How has it expanded the world? Chauvinist. Uh, <laughs> okay, I mean
2: I, I, the one thing I will say about the show is that um it's actually not at all relaxing. Mm. I've noticed that um I, I remember my boyfriend and I would be watching it and we would kind of need to watch The Office after. It's just something to relax because we find that we're like both very tense when we're watching it. So yeah. it's, I don't actually know why I'm choosing that as an escape route now that I think about it. It
0: but. is an emerging theme on this section where politics people, what do you watch to escape from politics? Really heavy political dramas is what I watch.
1: <laughs> Say
3: How
0: about you?
1: Because they're, the they're the only thing that makes reality look a little bit lighter. Absolutely. <laughs> What's yours? Um, so my other half had never seen The Good Wife. Ha. It is splendid and it's all on the Channel 4 website. So if you haven't seen The Good Wife, I cannot recommend it enough. It's basically LA Law as sort of written by the writers of the West Wing. So so it's like the format is there's a case every week, um, but there's also wider political context going on Mm. around the office. It's, It's just absolutely splendid. And what's brilliant about it for me you know as a lovey is that every single casting choice is brilliant and every single actor in even the smallest part just has an internal life of their own and a story that makes sense so you know even the cleaners in the background kind of have their own thing going on which is just brilliant
0: and it's got Julianna Margulies in it yeah well, there we go. You made me want to
2: rewatch it. <laughs> Kalinda Sharma was my favourite. Yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, mine. I'm going to redress the balance here in terms of there's all this heavy political content. I went to see Abba Voyage, the live show. Oh, I've seen, seen it. It was amazing. It absolutely blew my mind. It's like nothing like I've ever seen. It's obviously the tunes are incredible, but the uh, the avatars, the digitally mapped, reskinned dancers with the faces and part you know kind of the bodies of abba not just reproducing the classic routines but also doing things that abba never really did things happen in terms of Digital presentation that just take this music into a completely different place. Plus, it's a full live band as well, so it's yeah. you know you're not the faced, lighting. The lighting is, is incredible. The lighting is the best thing ever. Well, because seen. it's a purpose built theatre, the yeah. light show can do stuff that won't happen, mm. say in the Brixton Academy or you know the Liverpool Empire or anything like that. It's It's but the, it like, is
1: basically a, a theatre full of people our age, I, sort I, of. I gotta say, I felt s- like I was at the younger sitting end, on, <laughs> sitting on their hands for about four songs and then reluctantly getting up and beginning to shake their old saggy I was on
0: the dance floor. I'm always (laughs) on the dance floor. And there are bangers aplenty. Someone like (laughs) Sessi gets performed, what more could you wish for? And also really moving... I've got to go to that. Apparently, Yeah. yeah, I've heard it is brilliant. It's unbelievable. It's, I mean, okay, you're dealing with the gold standard of pop music, songs that have not been bettered by anybody. But the way it's presented... I was, I was properly taken apart by how it's I mean, It network. takes
1: you like 10, 15 minutes, I think, to just tune yourself into the weirdness of what you're watching mm. because you spend the first 10, 15 minutes trying to untangle what is real, what is not, what is physical, what is projection. And so you kind of miss the show by trying to work all that stuff out. But then you kind of sucks you in and it's extraordinary.
0: It's mega pop. It's all artifice. Yes. That's the way it ought to be. On that note, we come to the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you for listening. We're going to see you on Friday for another episode. God knows what will have happened to politics by then. Uh, but thank you for joining me, Yasmin. Thanks for having me. Alex. Thank you. And Tom Peck. Thank you very much. Now, remember, listeners, if you want to help us in the fight for growth in the independent podcast sector, you can always back us on Patreon. You get the podcast early without adverts. You get hand designed merchandise and you get a shout out on the show. So here is our theme tune Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, along with a thank you shout out to some of our backers.
2: Hello and thanks from me for your support to Sally Baganall, Alex Newsome, Rob Meller, David Von Birch, Ian Merrick, Clive Hewitt, Kevin Brennan. Tom Packham and Ian Brunson.
1: And a big hug from me and another traumatic week to Neil Dunder, Daniel Brilliant, Derona Moss, Rachel Christopher, Alan Hartnell, Pete, Ewan Mulligan, Stephen Holmes, Kate Daly, and Nicole Hatch. And all the best from me too.
0: Barbara Karai, Eamon Clark, Jonathan, Arthur Pint, possibly not real name, Vanessa Hill, Stephen Banget, Joe Caulfield, John Higgins, Steve Loney, and Camilla Hill. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on Friday.
1: Oh, God. Who's the Prime Minister now? It was produced and presented by
3: Andrew Harrison, with Tom Peck, Alex Andreu, and Yasmin Saran. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers, Jacob Archbold, Jolnir Sofrenievich, and me, Alex Rees, with assistant production from Kasia Tomaszewicz. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh, God, What Now? is a podcasters production.